Well, I'd like to thank my guest today, Alexander Schoenbaum, for joining me. He is the founder and CEO of CrowdOut Capital, a private debt fund here in Austin, Texas, and a good friend of the firm. Alexander, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Kevin, for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, well, I, I think we've known each other for for a little while now. Back at, at least during my days at the previous firm, through one of your colleagues, uh, as well. And as part of our initiative for 2022 on the podcast, was to bring closer into the podcast and let our clients and, and future, hopefully future clients, understand the type of partners with whom we work, it, mainly in the private private area, private equity, private debt, private real estate, uh, and other types of real assets. And uh, my favorite person in private debt is Alexander. And so I wanted to have you on first. So thanks for being here. And really just before we get into the, the meat of the podcast is uh, if you would just give us an overview of your background, how did you get into founding CrowdOut Capital and how did you get into the private debt world? Sure. Well, th- thanks, Kevin. I uh, appreciate that and happy to share a little bit. I started my career in investment banking back in the early 2000s. I knew I wanted to do that coming out of middle school, funny enough, uh, and then high school and college. So I, I pursued it that way. I really enjoyed business and, and always wanted to learn how other businesses got done. It turns out there's lots of ways to make money. And so uh, I started my career at Piper Jaffray in their consumer mergers and acquisitions team. Uh, we focused on retail, restaurant, food, agriculture, anything, consumer packaged goods, anything that a consumer might buy directly or through a retailer, and including retailers. And from there, moved back to Austin in 2006, and shortly thereafter joined a private equity firm, uh, a private equity and private credit firm here, worked there up until the financial crisis when the fund was getting ready to go raise fund two. And I thought it'd be more fun to be somewhere else at that time. And then at the fund, great folks have a lot of respect for them. They've done really well, but I went my own way and hooked up with one of the founders of Jeffrey's Investment Banking out of Drexel. And then he mentored me for the next seven or so years as we worked on what I would call complicated finance. That, that is things that other people have a hard time doing because it's either just difficult or complicated or too small uh, relative to the type of check that a normal check writer in that space might write, or something that makes it off the run in some form or fashion. I uh, always felt like it was better to have a differentiator and advantage than it is to just compete uh, in a more commodity market. I mean, dollars are, are dollars, and otherwise they're the same. And so we wanted to be in a place where that wasn't, wasn't the case. We worked together for a number of years, and then uh, my wife and I decided that being on the West Coast four days a week was too many living in Austin. And so I uh, stopped working with, with, with him. We're still good friends and uh, joined a little boutique investment bank to kind of figure out what was next and ended up working on a complicated transaction. And, and I think that's really what led me to starting CrowdOut. It was a complicated transaction that many institutional investors really liked, made a lot of sense. It was in the bar and restaurant space but more alcohol forward than a traditional casual dining restaurant. And many institutional investors just said, hey, I love it. This is a great investment. If I could put my money in it, I would. But I don't know how to tell my teacher pension fund that we're investing in an alcohol forward concept. I'm not talking about anything in a sin industry or anything along those lines. It's just more of a bar than it is a restaurant. And I said, that's interesting. Appreciate the feedback. 
We talked to some family office friends. They were very interested in doing it and making the investment. But even though they could write at that point a $50 million check, they didn't really want to be that concentrated or didn't want to lead a transaction, but would be happy to group together to do it. But at that time, about six uh, and a half years ago, they, they just sort of felt like there's nowhere to go do this. I guess I could be in a fund, but I don't always want to be in a fund for various reasons, being here in Texas, many energy family offices with, with concentration of wealth in oil and gas kept telling us, look, we like what you, we, we like the stuff that you show us. It has nothing to do with oil and gas. So that's great. Every time I end up in a fund, they end up putting money in oil and gas because it always needs money. And then I, that, that conversation rippled across technology, investors and founders and others where there was some concentration of wealth. That's how the family got wealthy, mm-hmm. uh, where they either took one of two approaches. Either they said, I have enough wealth tied up in a particular industry or geography. I want to diversify. Or they would say, I really, really know how I made my money. I'm going to double, triple, quadruple down in that particular sector because I have an advantage, uh, an expertise or whatever. And I said, that's really interesting. Well, while also on the institutional side, I was talking to institutions, working with great companies and having a hard time getting them to invest in some of the more challenging investments or more complicated investments. So I started a firm called Crowdout Capital with one of my colleagues at that investment bank. And we knew that we had underwritten and, and sourced opportunities before. Uh, it's well within our skill set. And so we felt like, okay, we'll go find great investments. We'll go bring our family office investors along. And if we need to go raise more capital outside of that, then I already know how to show it to the much larger uh, groups uh, if we need to do that. And so that's what we did. We just, we left on, I closed that, tra- the, that um, acquisition on December 22nd and credit already had its first LOI signed and was already working on its first transaction. Uh, and so we ended up having a deal out of the gate or an investment out of the gate for a core blood storage business, which was a public company, uh, is a public company. And that was off to the races from there. And with the with the basic idea of let's invite all of our friends and family to participate on an interesting transaction that we want to put our own money in and try to get enough together where we'll be the lead. So there's not the lead investor problem, we'll be the lead. And then just make a deal happen where we like it, we like the opportunity, and we want to put our own money into the opportunity. And not just our own money, we want to put our friends' money in as well, which I think is actually a in my personal perspective, a higher bar. I, I have more respect for my friend's money than I do my own. I know the feeling. <laughs> so, well, thank you for giving me that background on on the business and helping you know our listeners understand you know the evolution of crowd out capital. I'm going to jump next into the underwriting process. You spoke about this taking capital from friends and family is is a higher calling. You know, speaking of the unique deal specific, the idiosyncratic risk that you guys take in, in the type of opportunities that you pursue. How do you underwrite that? What is the process that you and your team pursue or go through to discover that, yes, this is this is a wonderful opportunity where we feel, and I could be wrong, but when I look at these, I feel that, the, that you guys have located a deal that has the risk curve skewed to the right to some large extent. Well, thank you, Kevin. That's really what we try to do. And and from our perspective, when we look at an opportunity, we quickly classify it as down the fairway, which means in a regular size check range for the type of investment that they're looking for. So for us, 
fairway deals in the private credit space tend to be 50 to 250 million. That's not CrowdOut's fairway. That's just the private credit fairway. So we try to stay, stay out of the fairway where there's some level of complexity that comes along with the business where we can really do a lot of work, understand the company and how it functions, and effectively generate better return from our investors as a result. And that process has morphed over the years as we have learned more, but I think more than anything, as we have garnered more investors. So CrowdOut, we have about 400 investors that have invested with us over the last six years. And that means we now have roughly 400 different experts that trust us with their capital and are willing to share their experiences with us. And that's not what I set out to build, but it's what we have very fortunately ended up with. So it starts with the traditional intake process of looking at the financials, understanding the industry writ large, reading about it, making sure that we have a good handle on it. Now, most people or most folks in my firm have some industry that they've spent more time on than others. So for me, consumer, because that's where I started, uh, or telecom, I've done a fair bit of work in the telecom space. Uh, Others might be more industrial or manufacturing. And whoever it is that has more experience in that space will sort of lead the underwrite. Uh, From there, it's a traditional financial underwrite. But really, we want to understand how a dollar of consumer demand, whatever that consumer or customer is, turns into distributable cash flow however far down the line, maybe it's one year or one month or one day down the line for that company. So we really follow that trail all the way through. And it's understanding the operations of the business, understanding the the ecosystem in which the company operates. So from a business school perspective, you might think about it like Porter's Wise Forces types of, mm-hmm. uh, of analysis. And, and there's that traditional underwrite as well, but where we where we try to differentiate ourselves, and this is sort of what helps us with the more complex situations is understanding how a business functions. And, and I, I say that we become a better partner for our investments when we really understand what they do and how they do it. Because, and I tell this to every potential investment uh, management team that we invest with, no model is ever correct. We know that. Mm-hmm. They're either way better, way worse, a little better, a little worse, And for us, understanding why those things happen or how they could happen means that as a business is different from plan, we have designed an investment that radically protects what we care about, but gives the company the flexibility to deal with those other issues. And by the way, things going really well is a real problem for some companies. All of a sudden, they have too much demand and they don't have any money and they need to buy product and they're stuck in a working capital crunch. Well, is that a bad problem? Is it a good problem? How do you know the difference between the two of them? Uh, and so that's really what we try to seek to understand on the front end so that there's fewer surprises on the back end uh, overall. And then a lot of it is also background checking. At the end of the day, you can't do a good deal with a bad person. And we spend a lot of time getting to know the people behind the companies that we work with. Because yes, we make loans to businesses. Yes, we make investments in businesses. But really, those are in people and systems and teams that let those businesses thrive and actually make things happen. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I would say the the mantra is very similar here. And one of the reasons that led us to you is that we always say 90% of our due diligence when we are looking at evaluating an opportunity for one of our families or all of our families is the people, is the team a good team? Are they able able to execute? And do they have the right moral standards to operate 
the the business that they say they're going to run. And so I 100% agree with you there. Backing up a little bit in terms of timeline between now and let's say when you launched the firm six and a half years ago, that was right around the time that private credit, private debt as a whole, as you said, the fairway had generally been 50 to 250 million. And that's always existed, right? That that demand has been there. Institutions have been in this space for a very, very long time. But it's where I really began to see families start to look at smaller opportunities, uh, you know, a different fairway, as you said earlier. Give me your kind of take on the growth of private debt for family offices and ultra high net worth individuals as an asset class. It's been really interesting looking at really participating in the private credit market over the last six and a half years, where it started with not that many firms with not that much track record to private credit focused firms to big firms adding private credit strategies to now large asset managers acquiring private credit strategies, even if they had nothing to do with private before, then buying into it. I mean, I think the pinnacle of that is Brookfield buying Oak Tree. Like that's the biggest. Now those are two giants doing giant stuff. So that's that's the gods playing up in the clouds as far as I'm concerned. Mm-hmm. But But what we've seen is that journey has meant that family offices had traditionally either just been in one of those larger funds, and you know the the brand names are the Aries or Golub or some of those Monroe Capital to a lesser degree, but they've grown a bunch. And then, but those firms have grown so much that while those families can continue to participate, they are not always the most meaningful investors in a way that they might have been five or ten years ago, uh, when you know a state pension fund or a, a a sovereign wealth fund puts in, you know, nine. 10 figure checks, very few families can put that much money into a single fund with a single manager and a single vintage. It's just not likely. And so what we've seen from, a, from family offices is, yes, many will participate in funds um, and many will also part, but more and more will start participating on individual deal basis where there's a manager that brings an opportunity, does the work, does the underwriting, does the servicing and management of it, and they'll participate. And that was really where our business started was trying to invite more of those people along. Now, they didn't really know they wanted private credit in 2015, 2016, but that that conversation has changed quite a bit uh, as well. Yeah. Speaking of that changing conversation, I'm sure it's a question. Uh, we were talking about this beforehand on the podcast is probably the number one question that you're receiving right now as a, as a private credit manager is what, what will be and what are the impacts of rising rates on your business? I think it's a, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty as to how rates are going to rise, whether they're all at once or just a little bit and they come back. From, from our perspective, our loans are floating rate loans. So like direct direct impact, it doesn't change anything about our underlying business. But the worldview that I've come to see as rates came down so much, you know, zero effectively uh, over the last few years, is there's really two kinds of, of investors out there in the universe. There are those that have to invest, I call them forced investors, and those that don't have to invest at any particular moment, I call them optional investors. Forced investors or have to invest investors are entities that need to put money to work because there is a ticking time bomb within their business 
or their mandate that they have to serve, whether that's a bank with its own liabilities or an insurance company with matching liabilities like life insurance uh, or pension funds where their liabilities are serving out, you know, capital for their or investment, or, sorry, serving dollars out to their pensioners, paying the pension out. They have to put money to work because if they don't, they're just further and further behind their obligations. So those are all forced investors. And I also call them spread investors because it doesn't matter if rates are zero or 20, they're going to put money out. And on the, on the flip side, there are optional investors, which I tend to think of more as people and then certain, certain other entities, but, but they tend to be people because people don't have to make an investment decision for six months. And that's usually just fine for them. They don't need the money to be working. Cash drag is the industry term for uh, Mm -hmm. what we have, which is money just sitting in a checking account effectively. Uh, Cash drag is not something that people tend to consider in the same way that a pension fund has to consider cash drag. Uh, And so I think as we see rates rise, we'll see more optional investors come into the market. Whereas when markets were, or credit, credit rates were down very, very low, you wouldn't see many of the optional investors in. Yes, private credit grew a lot, but part of that was not part of it. Much of it was was driven by those forced investors who had to be in the market pushing rates down because they had so much excess capital. They didn't want to be in the public market, so they couldn't get it invested on the private equity side of things or, or whatever it might be. So private credit was a way to get yield, particularly as the high yield market is, I think, in the fours as we speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was in the threes at some point. That's hardly yield for someone that's trying to hit a seven or an 8% hurdle rate uh, on their portfolio as a whole. Yeah. And I think the optional investors, I often look at them as absolute investors. Mm-hmm. So they've invested before and they're used to investing in a certain space at a certain yield rate. And they haven't really comprehended the fact that the spread has fallen, you know, or maybe the spread's the same, but the, the, you know, instead of a 2% cash-free rate or in a risk-free rate, now you have a 0% risk-free rate. So your, your overall rates went from 10 to eight. Now they're like, well, I'm, I'm not going to get 8% in a high yield fund or a mezzanine fund. They, they look at that more absolute than they do on an adjusted basis. And so. Uh, uh, absolutely. So- I mean, just taking it in my own personal account, if someone said, Hey, you can invest in this super safe thing, We'll call it a certificate of deposit and we'll pay you 25, 50 basis points for a year. No, thank you. I would rather the the opportunity cost of having the money in the CD to me is not worth it. Well, maybe I need to buy braces or for my kids or I want to go on a vacation. That's not something that a pension fund thinks about. They just think, okay, that's better than zero. I need if that's the right move, then if 50 is what I get, 50 is what I get. If it's 25 or if it's a thousand. That's what I'm doing. And I think that that is really to your point. Absolute investors are are really more people-driven uh, investors as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. I have to ask about it because it's still hanging around is what is the impact of COVID been not just on, on crowd out capital, but the underlying businesses uh, with whom you invest? On, on crowd out, May of 20 or March of 2020 was really scary. I think it was scary for everybody. We were not exempt. It was what is going to happen. And we don't know how this is going to work. We had all kinds of investments. We had restaurant companies. We had manufacturing businesses. We had 
logistics companies in the queue, like, what, what do you do? And ultimately, that sort of figured itself out. And, and what it meant over the last 18 months was that we returned about $100 million of capital back to our investors at great returns over, over that period of time. I think within our business, it meant that there was a lot of liquidity in the market, whether it was via PPP or on the smaller side of, of the businesses, whether it's with PPP or other programs, that many companies that could be potential borrowers for us or potential investments for us just weren't seeking capital. So mm-hmm. we saw deal flow slow, we'll call it quality deal flow slow down for a while yeah. there. And so we returned a lot of capital to investors. Our fund had some cash drag as a result of it because we would rather hold cash than just put it to work. This goes back to being that optional investor versus a forced investor. And so we sat tight. But as that unwound, we started to see really good opportunities. But but I think from a complicating perspective, there have been really three kinds of companies that we've seen. One are those that just really had a hard time or maybe didn't make it through COVID. <laughs> COVID just leveled a lot of businesses, unfortunately. You have the opposite which seems to be just about as prevalent are those businesses that really pop through COVID mm-hmm. that something about them happened, anything in the outdoor space, whether that's fun and games outside or uh, barbecuing or outdoor cooking or home remodels or anything that had to do with making your home life more interesting or your outdoor life more interesting, which is a COVID safe thing to be. Those businesses just have thrived and they actually continue to thrive. We're seeing a lot of that. And we sort of wonder, is that hangover going to stop ever? At some point, you feel like you can't buy any more tennis rackets, but you just never know. Uh, Or or RVs or camping tents or (laughs) or whatever, whatever it might be. And, uh, and then there's been, and there's been the businesses that have been sort of in the middle, which maybe had a a little impact for a little while. They recovered. It was an anomaly for them. Businesses pretty well back to normal for them, but there's not as many of those as it seems like we see on either shoulder. And so where so from an opportunity set, we've seen a smaller opportunity set. We've seen the same number of dollars or more chasing that opportunity set. And so that's why I think we've seen yields generally until we'll, we'll see what where, where rates rise at the at the national levels. But that's why I think we've seen yields uh, go down. And, and a lot of it reminds me of what happened in the wake of the 09 financial crisis, 0809 financial crisis of this flight to safety where something is good and predictable, you could borrow money or raise money at an amazing price as a company. If you were willing to take some risk as an investor, you could get some real outsized returns because people are just shying away from any kind of risk. And it feels a lot like that to me right now as well. And so I think that's where we've been hunting is on the fringe of that. And what I think we've started to do is be a little bit more thoughtful about where on the risk curve we are. Historically, we've stayed really close to the senior secured loan where we have very low leverage, very safe profile. There is some complication with the business that allows us to get outsized return, but that's where we focused to get above the curve return. We've always said we're risk-adjusted return focused, but that's where we felt like there was really good risk-adjusted return for a long time. Now we've we we still see some of that, but because yields have compressed generally so much, again we'll see where that goes. But because yields have compressed, we've started to look further down the risk curve, mm. where we see a better risk-adjusted return. Partly because I don't see good risk-adjusted return at 
where much of the private credit space is playing or high yield. Uh, I, I think high yield is the worst risk adjusted return I've ever seen on, of any product ever, given the leverage profile and the return that comes with, comes with it. Um, I think as we see better opportunity, just a little bit further down the curve, maybe it's a little bit deeper leverage. Maybe it's a second lean position instead of a first lean position. We're not doing a lot of it, but we're starting to see some interesting middle capital opportunities that are in that space. We are very opportunistic about how we do things. And our number one mandate is don't lose money. And then number two is see number one. Uh, so that's, that's really, famous Buffett quote. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Right. And so that's how we think about things. Um, but we know that there's risk. If there's not risk, there's no return, but uh, that's where we're seeing the, the pandemic and what's going on with COVID impact things is I think you're seeing a sort of a, a, a V curve of risk, uh, or maybe an inverted V curve of risk where, where risk in, uh, risk adjusted return is lower on the edges, the the really big private equity technology venture stuff, it feels like, man, prices are outrageous on the venture stuff and prices are outrageous on the senior credit stuff from an investor's perspective. And so we're trying to be a little bit more in the middle there where we see a little bit better return. Gotcha. Now, what's unique, I think, about CrowdOut is that you offer families the opportunity to participate in a fund, as well as the individual opportunities that you underwrite. So tell me about that, the, the genesis of that and why that evolved with inside, in, inside of CrowdOut Capital. You know, I have my theory on it because you know, I invest from a certain standpoint for our families and we follow both of them w- with your firm closely. And, uh, and so, but tell me more about how that evolved, especially the fund. Sure. So we really started off on a deal by deal or an investment by investment basis. And that made the most sense for us out of the gate. We didn't, as a firm, have a track record. It was easier to talk about individual transactions. And and then we didn't have to have a specific mandate that we adhered to, particularly as we were developing our style as a firm. We knew what we wanted to do, but doing what you want to do isn't always what you get to do. And we, we've been very fortunate that we, we've been able to do what we wanted to do um, in terms of how we've wanted to invest. And, and so deal by deal made a lot of sense for us. It makes sense for a lot of our investors. We really like having the platform there. We call it our platform. We really like it. We've garnered, as I said, 400 investors on that side who are owners, operators, family offices, institutions with all different kinds of expertise. And they really make our underwriting better. I was not expecting that. It is very true. We have a, a family office up in New York. The first investment was actually led by just a, one of the individuals who works at the family office, not, not on behalf of the family, just his own personal. He wanted to invest a little bit of money with us. He found us and he invested with us. And he asked, he, turns out he used to work at JP Morgan Leverage Finance. Uh, and so he knew all of the questions and then some to ask. And it was great. Like honestly, we got his list of questions, and they were they were very respectful. It was not accusatory. It was just like, please tell me about these things. This is really interesting. I'd like to know more about this. And it was just like, wow, this is awesome. This is iron sharpening iron. And 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 we've learned that we can reach out to our investor base, and ask for help. People take it the right way when we say we need help. They come and help. And even in places where we don't expect people to be helpful, we find someone that is helpful, which is, so that's been really great having that. 
but that's a lot for some kinds of investors. And what we found is that certain types of investors, some of our people, some of it are investment managers or, or RIAs or other wealth management firms, can't really manage the process of doing individual deal-by-deal investing for a sustained period of time. It's really hard. Our process moves fast. We have to close loans quickly. We need to get them. We need to get a memo in hand when we're fairly certain the deal is going to close, but not so far, not but not so close that we can't get the capital raised. So that 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 gap sometimes requires very quick turnaround. Sometimes our investments sell out very very quickly, particularly if they're on the smaller side. And that just sort of, I think one of our investors called it whack-a-mole. It's like mm-hmm. they've got to trying to trying to catch one of our investors like playing whack-a-mole. And so we set up a fund that better that better serves and better fits certain kinds of investors. They're all the same investments. There's no difference between the two of them, with very limited exceptions, where something that we don't think is a fit for purpose for the fund, but we like the opportunity. And so we'll just share it with everybody and we tell everybody in the fund about it so they could invest in it individually if they wanted to. But but this way, it's like, okay, I trust your firm. I've done you work on you. I've seen your credit process. What do I know about chicken processing or business process outsourcing or home health and hospice? Maybe I know about one of them, but I don't know about all of the things that you guys do. So let, I just, I believe in your underwriting. I would rather just do it that way. So we're very indifferent to how people invest with us. Um, the fund has been very successful for those kinds of investors that are a better fit for that type of, of product as well. Some investors say, look, I just want to be in everything. I want the instant diversity that comes with being in a fund and then send me all your individual stuff. And if there's something I particularly want to double down on uh, or I have expertise on or whatever, happy to be able to invest in both. And, and so we, we obviously don't preclude people from doing both as well. Well, thank you. And I will say this maybe as a... Uh as a direct thank you to for creating the fund because we know that takes a lot of work, time, and effort to stand that up. And as a fiduciary working for our families, it that diversification. And again, just finding someone that we really trust in this space to say, you know, crowd out, you guys have a great you just laid it out yourself. You have a great process. You have good people. We trust you. We don't understand all of the underlying industries. Go make great great investments and, and let us participate in in the yield from those. So one last question, well, maybe one more after this, but uh, second to last question, it, you, as you said earlier, you work with about 400 different entities, mostly families. And if you were to give one piece of advice to a family that maybe they have newly created liquidity, maybe they have never ventured into the private debt space or private credit space, what would be your one piece of advice that you would give a family who is going to be to begin investing in this space? Get help. That's the number one piece of advice. Whatever you did to create your wealth, my guess you're really good at that. And you might even be really good at a lot of things, but unless you've been in the financial industry, there's a lot of things. There are a lot of things that are happening. I am constantly learning about new things that are happening in credit that I just didn't even know. And apparently they've been happening for 50 years. And it's just some weird little New York thing (laughs) that is like a trillion dollars worth of flow. Uh, I don't know. But Getting help, working with advisors, managers, friends, could be a club, could be your neighborhood poker night, doesn't matter, but get help, talk to people, 
get advice from others, background check everybody you work with. But really, it all goes back to get help from from someone that can guide you on certain paths. And and I think that's really important as as we look. And again, we've got 400 investors of all stripes, and some of them are do-it-yourself people uh, who just want to make every individual investment. I'll raise my hand. I'm a do-it-yourselfer. Uh, surprise. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I do it myself. <laughs> I, I pick my index funds. I do that kind of thing yeah. personally. And mostly I just invest in what, what we do here at CrowdOut. Uh, I have that advantage. But it's not possible to know about everything. Like It's just not possible. Yeah. And, and so I think getting that help will make it easier to see all of the different kinds of ways to invest. I mean, I didn't know that timber investing was like a thing people did, but apparently timber investing is a really interesting and, and lucrative and unique thing that I had no idea existed until one of our investors said, oh yeah, we specialize in timber investing. Okay, what is timber investing? Or global macro, which is a term that I hadn't heard until four or five years ago, even though I'd been in the financial industry for 15 years at that point or, yeah, or whatever. That's and a seriously hedge fund term right there. It is. Global <laughs> macro. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> what does that mean? But, but so there's just so many different things. Private credits and other ones. We get from business owners regularly. What do you mean you lend money to companies, but you're not a bank? No. Are you an insurance company? No. Are you? No. Okay. Tell me what that means. And these are people who run big companies who have, have exited maybe to a private equity firm or maybe thinking about exiting. They don't even know our category exists. And, and I consider ourselves fairly vanilla as far, at least as a category, I fairly vanilla as financial instruments go. So I think getting help um, and, and I think working with a group like yours is a great way for investors, family offices, newly liquid, or maybe not even newly liquid, but maybe going to be liquid at some point to start thinking about where they want to invest. Do they want to do it with capital appreciation or just income oriented? Do they want to do something more than make money with their money? Do they want to do good with their money in some way where it's a more of a comprehensive plan? And, and I think setting up a more comprehensive and thoughtful plan will prove to be very helpful. Um, I'll say, I'll, 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 I'll keep elaborating on this, but, but last last bit here is we talked to one very, very large, we'll call it taste-making family office here in Texas. They're not the biggest family office in Texas, but they're close and they've been doing it for a really long time. And, and we were talking to them about how they, how they pick their investments. We said, do you do it direct? Do you do it with managers? And they said, well, we started off, we did all managers and that was great. And then we thought we could do it because the managers were showing us how they did it and they taught us their business and that was great. And so we sort of swung the pendulum back to doing individual deals, which is really how the family created its wealth. And that got overwhelming. And we didn't see the deal flow that we thought we would see. And our returns were actually worse after fees mm -hmm. and everything else than doing it with managers. And now we're swinging back to managers with co-investment. And, and I think yeah. that's where we've seen that overall pendulum kind of swing is you don't have to be all manager driven. You don't have to be all direct driven, but some hybrid tends to be uh, what I think what works well for people, but that just precipitates getting help. Yeah, for sure. And the, and the manager plus co-invest opportunities is really the sweet spot. And you you struck this statement earlier, as you said, I'm a, I'm a do-it-yourselfer. And uh, something that I posited years ago was that there's, there's really only three types of investors and everyone fits into one of these categories. It is uh, the, the do-it-yourselfers, there's the do-it-with-me and the do-it-for-me. 
And that the reality of that situation is that the do-it-yourselfers and the do-it-for-me people are actually a very small percentage, maybe five to 8% on either end with the do-it-with-me in the middles. And it's because I think the individuals who create the type of wealth in their own businesses are naturally curious people. And they're intellectually curious and they want to ask questions, not necessarily to give us a hard time, but they really want to understand it. They genuinely want to understand what they're investing in because the way they made their wealth originally was by really understanding what they were doing. And um, But we serve all three of those niches at our firm, but again, really enjoy working with all of them. But to some extent, the, the do it with me is, is a very common theme that we hear. And I think crowd out is set up that way with both the individual opportunities and the fun. I think you guys nailed it. Well, thank you. And I think you're a hundred percent right with, with those three. We've seen that within our investor base and we have almost without fail worn out every do it, do it yourself investor where they now are, they've turned into do it with me investors. Do it with me. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. But That's funny. We, we, we like having all of them. It's, it's really great. And, and the do it with me people, are those people that help us. They, yeah. they are the ones that interject and say, I know something about whatever you're working on, uh, yes. which is really, which is fantastic. Yeah, I agree. Well, last question, we'll let you go. You've, you've spent more than a, a generous amount of your time with me today, but what is next for crowd out capital? We are really excited about exploring this middle capital area. And so we're seeing some thematic investment opportunities. I'm thinking about longevity and bifurcation of invest of, of investment opportunities where you're seeing either very high-end or very low-end opportunities, cost and volume, or whether you're seeing uh, really high-end and niche, niche things, uh, and then things that are driven at longevity as people are living longer. I mean, this is not a, a new theme here, but I think we're starting to see more interesting ways of working with it. So we're looking at how middle capital might be able to serve those markets a little bit better as well. That's not going to supplant what we're doing on the senior credit side of things, but some really opportunistic opportunities. Uh, wow, that's a mouthful. Opportunistic opportunities. <laughs> uh, some opportunistic investments that that we think provide excess risk-adjusted return. Gotcha. Well, Alexander, thank you again for carving this time out of your day, sharing your wisdom, your knowledge, and and your path as not just an entrepreneur, but really a trusted advisor also to these families placing capital in this space. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Kevin, for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to see you. Um, Have a great day. Hopefully hopefully we'll do this in person soon as well. (laughs) Absolutely. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Uncorrelated Minds podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. For more information on the topics covered in this podcast, please visit the show notes page for links to further information at www.sinaceracapital.com. Sinacera Capital is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Sinacera and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. The information provided is for educational and information purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, 
tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. All information has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy is not guaranteed. There is no representation or warranty as to the current accuracy, reliability, or completeness of, or liability for, decisions based on such information, and it should not be relied on as such. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. These documents may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.